In five, four, three. Hey, everybody. This is Danielle. And this is Daniel. And I'm Carla. And we are Hoosier Homicide. A true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know what a Hoosier is. Do you? Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. Great. We don't need to look anything up. (laughs) Go to Wikipedia and type in Alabama Hot Pocket. No, don't do that. (laughs) And that'll tell you what a Hoosier is. Just come listen to us. You'll find out. Anyway, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at Hoosier Homicide. You can also download any episode you prefer off of Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We tell true crime stories with some random connection to our home state of Indiana. So come listen. That's what she said. For the love of God. (laughs) And for honest to goodness, stay out of the corn. Pretty good. On today's episode, we discuss Junko Baruta and John Miles Sharp. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. I am Stan. And I'm Drew. And we have had nothing but problems. I know that this episode is late. We did not get an episode put out Saturday. We were out of town. And our computer got destroyed. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Everything for podcasting was on that computer. Our episodes, everything. My whole life, as far as podcasting (laughs) goes is destroyed now i'm in the process of trying to get it replaced but they said that could take up to a week or two and so we are using a loaner computer so the sound quality might be a little different today yep somehow water got in the floorboard of the car with the computer just sitting right in it and well that's and as woody would say the sugar turned to shit yes (laughs) Definitely. But we're going to try to do two episodes for you this week to make up for it. Yes. And I think that I'm going to go first today. Is that correct? Yep. You can go first. All right. I'm going to tell the story of Junko Furuta. Junko Furuta was a 16-year-old Japanese girl who underwent 44 days of rape and torture before dying in the hands of her captors on November the 22nd of 1989. Known throughout Japan as the concrete-encased high school girl, the case of Junko Furuta drew nationwide attention owing to sheer brutality the girl had to endure before death found her. And I'm going to say, this girl endured some torture. Yes. And then some. Junko Furuta attended a high school in Misato in Satama Prefecture, Japan. 
She was a good-looking, active teenager who enjoyed a lot of attention and that made some people jealous. She did not smoke, didn't drink alcohol, and didn't do drugs, which was seen as very uncool in the eyes of more gangster-like teens. One of them, Hiroshi Miyano, had a crush on her, but not looking for a relationship, Junko Furuta turned him down. Well, Hiroshi Miyano was the bully in the school and being involved with the new generations of the Yakuza, which is like a mafia type. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody dared to oppose him, and Junko Furuta had the nerve to say no. Well. Well, on November the 25th, 1988, she was kidnapped by four teenage boys. One of them being Hiroshi Miyano, which is who she turned down. Mm-hmm. Well, the boys took Junko to the house owned by the parents of one of the kidnappers in the IA's district of Adaki, Tokyo. While in captivity, the kidnappers forced Junko to call her parents and tell them that she'd run away and was going to stay with a friend, but insist that she was not in any danger. Not able to realize what was coming and too scared to remain non-compliant, Junko did exactly as she was told, ultimately forestalling a manhunt which would have otherwise followed her disappearance and maybe found her. Parents of Nabuharu Minato, in whose house Junko was kept, paid their son a visit on a few occasions, but under a threat of increased violence against her, Junko was requested to pretend that she was the girlfriend of one of the boys. However, even when it became apparent that she was a captive in the house, parents didn't do anything because it was said that they had a fear of retaliation from Hiroshi, who was known to have the Yakuza connections. During the course of 44 days following her kidnapping, Junko was forced to withstand unspeakable suffering. And here are some things that she had to endure before she was ultimately murdered. She was humiliated by being kept naked most of the time, was raped every day in both vagina and anus. More than 100 men are believed to have raped her. The captor with Yakuza connections is said to have invited other Yakuza members to have a go at a 16-year-old. She estimated to have gone through about 500 rapes. Dang. And at one point, she was raped by 12 different men in one single day. She endured physical beatings, which included hits with golf clubs and bashing of the face against the cement floor. And the 100 men who are believed to have raped her had also reportedly enjoyed urinating on her. Frequently, in order to turn her rapist on, she was forced to masturbate in front of them and the guests. She had various objects forced into her vagina and anus, and some of these included a bottle, an iron bar, scissors, roasting needles, grilled chicken skewers, and so on. Ow. More than ow. She was provided with only a limited supply of food and water. However, she was forced to eat live cockroaches and drink her own urine. 
She had fireworks forced up her anus and then set off, which caused serious internal burns. She had her left nipple ripped off with a pair of pliers. She had dumbbells dropped on her stomach while she laid on the floor with her hands and feet tied up. This resulted in a loss of bowel control. She was hung from the ceiling and used as a boxing bag. She was also kept in a freezer for several hours at a time. Her eyelids were burned with hot wax and lighters. Her breasts were pierced with sewing needles. She had her vagina and clitoris burnt with cigarettes and lighters. And she had a hot bulb inserted into her vagina and rubbed until it exploded inside. While she was only one quarter through her ordeal, owing to un ongoing beatings, Junko was unable to breathe through her nose because of the accumulation of blood in her cavities. Her traumatized internal organs refused to accept food and water, so when she did try to drink or eat, she instantly vomited, which not only kept her more dehydrated, but it also really agitated the perpetrators, who punished her with more beatings for soiling the carpet. At one point, when the attackers were resting after drinking, she tried to call the police, but she was caught and punished. And the punishment was having her feet set on fire with lighter fluid. Large bottles. The per perpetrators forced up her anus, caused serious internal injuries and nonstop bleeding. She had severe leg burns and very badly bruised muscles, and it left her unable to walk after 20 days of the ordeal. She was not able to handle anything with her hands anymore because her bones were smashed with weights and her fingernails were split. Since it was winter, she was also forced to sleep on a balcony, naked, exposed to the cold. After 30 days, Junko was unable to urinate properly due to damage of her internal organs and to the vulva from the insertion of various foreign objects and from the burn from the cigarettes and the lighters. Her hands and feet were damaged so badly that one time it took her over an hour to crawl downstairs to the bathroom. Her eardrums were also damaged and her brain size was even reduced from the malnourishment. Wow. Now, during the course of the 44 days when she was repeatedly tortured, beaten, and raped, Junko begged her captors several times to just kill her and be done with it. They didn't grant her that favor, though. Instead, on January 4th of 1989, they challenged her to a game of Mahjong. She won. Well, that seriously pissed the boys off. So they treated her to a beating with an iron barbell. Then poured lighter fluid on her legs, arms, face, and stomach and set her on fire. They did not try to douse the flames. They let the flames burn out on their own. 
being already badly beating, dehydrated, malnourished, Junko fell into a shock, but she did not die immediately. She died the following day a couple of hours later. Then the murderers stuffed her body into a 55-gallon drum and filled it with concrete, and they disposed of it in Koto, Tokyo. The names of the four main captors who kidnapped, tortured, raped, and murdered Junko were withheld by the Japanese court because they were juveniles. However, journalists from the Shukan Bunshun magazine dug them out and published them because they stated that after what they did to Junko, they did not deserve anyone to uphold any kind of human rights. Hiroshi Miyano, 18 years old at the time of the crime. Jo Agura, 18 years old at the time of the crime. Shinji Minato, 16 years old at the time of the crime. Yasushi Wantanabe, 17 years old at the time of the crime. All four perpetrators were caught and tried. However, because they were all underaged when the crime was committed, they were to be tried as juveniles, but they eventually faced sentences of adults, except that the courts withheld their identities. Still, given the severity of their crimes, the sentences they were handed out were very low. By now, each and every one of them is already out of jail. Three of the boys served less than eight years, and the leader was originally sentenced to 17 years in prison, but after his appeal, instead of lowering the sentence, the judge actually bumped his sentence up to 20 years. The same judge also increased the sentence for two more boys who appealed. One didn't, so his sentence stayed as it was. Either way, it doesn't really matter because they're all in their late 30s and they are all out of jail. Exactly. Joe Kamasaku was released in August of 1999, and he went back to prison in July of 2004 for seven years because after he got out, he started, he beated a guy that he thought was luring his girlfriend away from him and <laughs> like almost killed him. But yeah. he's also out of jail. Of course he is. And forensic examiners also found sperm and pubic hair of other people than those main captors on the corpse of Junko. So a few more names were linked to her torture and murder, and that was Kyoki Ihari and Tetsuo Nakamura. Yeah. And that is Junko Furuta. Wow, that was pretty messed up. That was very messed up. And all of them's out of prison already. Every one of them. Living their lives. Like nothing happened. And not her. Nope. So, do you have a story for us? Well, I sure do, Stanley. Would you like to hear it? 
Why, yes, Drew, I would. <laughs> would Anyways. you like to tell it? Yep, I sure will. Okay. My story's on John Miles Sharp. Okay. He was not sharp as a tech, though, just to let you know. Not the sharpest tool in the shed? No, he was not. <laughs> Anyways, John Miles Sharp was born on the 28th of February, 1967, in Mornington, Australia, and he grew up there. Sharp met his New Zealand-born wife, Anna Kemp, when they worked together at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. They then married in October 1994. They lived together in um, various locations around the Mornington Peninsula area south of Melbourne. Their daughter, Gracie Lewis Kemp, was born in August 2002. She was born with a condition called hip dysplasia, which is basically a congenital abnormity in her hips, and it required orthopedic treatment by a corrective harness for the first three months of her life. Oh, that would suck to have to wear. Yes, it would. It's like Forrest Gump with his leg braces. <laughs> but he could run. Yeah, it is. He could run real fast, boy. I could. I was running. <laughs> She cried a whole bunch and had difficulty sleeping, sleeping, and because of this, it placed some strain on the marriage. Even after the harness was no longer required, Gracie still had difficulties with um, feeding and sleeping, for which Anna sought professional assistance. In 2003, Sharp purchased a high-powered spear gun and an additional spear at Sport Philip Marine, which was a local shop in Mornington. Now, he had not previously shown an interest in spearfishing. He practiced firing the spear gun in the backyard of their home in order to become familiar with this operation. And what was it? I mean, I don't even think I like the way this is going. Because obviously I don't think he fishes that much. No, he does not. At all. But... Um, later that year, the Sharps purchased um, a house at 116th Prince Street, Mornington, in November 2003, when Gracie was about 15 months old. And oh, then, she's still young. Yeah. Anna became pregnant again. Oh, Lord. And Sharp later told police investigators that this pregnancy came a surprise to him. <laughs> Sharp apparently decided that he did not want another child. In his mind, one was enough of a burden. Mm. And he began to resent Anna and the unborn child. She might have resented him too. Oh shoot, I would. But on November the 21st, I mean, um... <laughs> Sorry. On Monday, the 21st of March, 2004, the family went to a family picnic to celebrate a nephew's birthday. Nobody noticed anything was off with John. He appeared to be the doting husband. The following morning, Anna took Gracie to nursery and made plans to meet up with a friend in a couple of days. The last interaction she had with another person other than her husband was the following day when she called her private health care provider and inquired about adding their unborn baby to their health cover. 
Can you do? I didn't know you could do that. I didn't either. On um, Tuesday night, Anna went to bed as usual. John, however, had something much more sinister in mind. He went to the garage and retrieved the spear gun he had purchased months earlier. He came back to the bedroom and shot his pregnant wife in the left temple. She didn't die instantly like he had expected. He shot her once again before covering her bloody body with a blanket. That must have been a very either low-powered spear gun or he really did not practice enough and yeah, so I don't I'm not quite sure what was going on about that but he then went downstairs to sleep on the sofa wow the following morning John took Gracie to nursery like nothing happened he created an elaborate lie that Anna had ran off with another man and said she'd be back to pick up Gracie right and she's pregnant. Exactly. She wouldn't just run off like that. Well, I guess she might would. I mean. Well. But she didn't. She ain't running Yeah, nowhere. but she didn't. John realized he needed to make Gracie disappear to solidify his lies. He returned to his wife's body to remove the spears, but they were lodged in her skull. He went to the same sports store and purchased more bringing Gracie along with him. If the first one was lodged in her skull, I don't see how she survived the first one. I'm not. No, I don't know. When John returned home, he buried his wife in their garden. On the evening of the 27th of March, John downed copious amounts of whiskey before creeping into his disabled daughter's bedroom, armed with the same spear gun he shot his wife with. As Gracie slept in her cot, John aimed at her head and pulled the trigger. The spear lodged in her skull but didn't penetrate deep enough to kill her. I'm not understanding how far I mean how far back is he standing because spear guns don't do they not They'd go be pretty powerful wouldn't through they? the water and like go into sharks and go stuff. Go into like yes they do. I okay, don't so I mean I'm not quite sure how this is not working out. It's not going as planned to him. The terrified toddler began to scream and cry. John rushed downstairs to retrieve more spears and shot her again. This too did not kill the defenseless little girl, so John violently pulled the spear from his daughter's head and shot her for the fourth time. He finally succeeded in killing her. On the fourth try, and she was like only yeah, that's how not old, an like just a little over a year? Yeah. He sucked. Yep. John wrapped Gracie's body in a tarp and bound it in duct tape. John then exhumed Anna's body and proceeded to dismember her with a chainsaw. He placed their, their bodies in the trunk of his car and drove to Rockley's Stone Tip, which was a dumping site. I have a bootload of hard waste, he told the attendant. John kept up his life for three months. Wait, a uh, what? What? He had a what? A bootload of hog boot waste? A bootload of hard waste. Hog? Hard. Oh. Good lord. I was about to say, why would you put hog waste in your trunk? Okay. 
He even went on television, though, and begged for information regarding the whereabouts of his wife and daughter and begged them to come home. Well, he said that the wife ran away. Yeah, I know. He did say... Yeah, but he's trying to solidify his lies. Well, I'm just saying... By doing all this, he's just... Now he's just screwing up. Because if she ran away, he also said that she was going to come and take the child. Come and get her. Well, maybe to everybody else, maybe... Maybe she did come back and take the child. Who knows? Yes, but you wouldn't go Supposedly. on TV and be like, oh, please come. I mean, who's going to let you go on TV? Oh, yeah. You're with <laughs> another man that's got a bigger spear than mine, and you can aim it better, so come back to me, honey, so come baby. come back to me. Exactly. And by the way, is the baby mine? <laughs> oh, this, well, this is what he said. Anyone that knows me knows I gave 100% for my daughter and my marriage. He told the local newspaper. In an attempt to keep his charade going, John even used Anna's ATM card at a bank in Chelsea and even emailed her mother in New Zealand, pretending to be her. Please respect and understand my wish for privacy and take comfort in the fact that I'm about to enjoy life like I've never before. One of the emails read. <laughs> Eventually, it's lies. Well, I'm pretending to be the wife. But anyways, eventually his life started to crumble all around him. Police has collected enough circumstantial evidence to charge him with murder. Some key pieces included a videotape of John visiting a Mornington toilet block where Anna's ATM card and mobile phone were discovered discarded. First of all, what the crap... What What's e- a toilet What even block? is a toilet block? And why would you need to use an ATM? I mean, how would you use an ATM I imagine it's, toilet it's block? something in, like, Australia. It's probably a well, type of street name or something like that. I you don't know. know. Toilet block? I don't know. It's something I would have. I've tried to, um, like, find it. I don't even know what it is. But anyways, just say, like, a block. Okay. Toilets. <laughs> or maybe people it's use the bathroom really. all on it's the street. It's not there. really. No, they if don't. you're from Australia, let us know what's a toilet block. What is a toilet? But anyways, yeah, because they just found this videotape of him visiting the toilet. Just block. say a block, in and the they shouldn't time. have a video camera where there's toilets. <laughs> it's a pervert. Anyways, they also found that John had gotten rid of the mattress he killed Anna on and purchased a new one. Well, that's probably a good idea. Just two weeks after her disappearance. Police also found several scrawl notes in John's handwriting disposed of in bins around Mornington. These notes detail parts of his cover story and even backup stories. An investigation of the house turned up a receipt for an electrical chainsaw, tarps, and duct tape. Well, the spear gun was found when investigators uncovered blood of both Gracie and Anna inside the home. On June 22, 2004, police arrested Sharp and interviewed him twice. During his interview, he continued to deny any knowledge of their whereabouts. But during the second, having spoken to his family, he admitted to both murders. He told police he killed his wife because he was controlling a moody. Because she was controlling a moody and... Their marriage was unhappy. 
And trolling and moody were good lord all of them that's would about, kill our that's, spouses. Yeah, that's about all that it is. Anyways. Um, he also told police he was thinking of taking care of Gracie by himself and just among and just amongst all the madness, that's when I lost the plot. That's what he said. Mm. According to some family members, Sharp may have also killed his wife because she discovered his abuse of Gracie. And she's disabled then. Come on now. The claim comes as family letters reveal Sharp had a history of sexual abusing children. Police undertook a massive search lasting three weeks of the Mornington landfill site and eventually recovered both bodies. Sharp appeared in the Supreme Court of Victoria where he arraigned and pleaded guilty to the murders of Anna and Grace Kemp. On August 5, 2005, the court, the court sentenced Sharp to two consecutive terms of life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 33 years. Sharp resides in protective custody <laughs> while incarcerated due to threats on, on his life from fellow prisoners. Wow. Anna and Gracie are buried in Green Park Cemetery, Dunedin, under Anna's birth name of Kemp. Gracie's birth and death certificates were posthumously edited to read Father Unknown. And that's all I've got for you. He was a loser. He really was a loser, wasn't he? I mean, not only a loser because he killed his family... But he was he was he just really a loser in general. He sucked at killing them. Yeah, he did. And then he bought an electric chainsaw to dismember somebody. Wouldn't you want a gas powered one? It's a little stronger than electric. Why would you buy an electric chainsaw to dismember a body? I don't know. Not to mention the blood and stuff might make it Dude, spark got, out. Yeah, for real. It might just well, you might end up um getting electrocuted from it. Shoot. <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> that would have been so funny. Like, oh, man dies from trying to kill his wife with the chainsaw, but electrocutes himself from no, her own No, he killed blood. him with spear. I know, but, like, he dies from... Dismembering. From trying to dismember a body, but gets electrocuted himself. Right, that'd be cool. <laughs> I mean, it'd be deserving. That. It would be deserving. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I got say a that's justice. What? Which person would you rather have been? Which victim? Are you crazy? Do you, is that even a question that you were asking? Why would well, I got, ever well, wait? Wait. Well, Gracie had to get shot four times. I don't she, care. Why would I ever want to be the girl that you talked about? Because that is just horrendous. Well, and well, well. Plus, I'd way rather get shot four times in the head because you don't really have a lot up there. <laughs> I've got plenty up here to get me along. Empty space. Yeah, right. But anyways, I would. Oh yeah, like I would way rather get shot in the head four times than have to deal with the torture that she did. I agree. 
Well, finally, we would get to agree on something. But anyways. Well, that's what we have for this episode. Please stay tuned. And this Saturday, we will have our normal episode come out. Yes, this was... Sorry about it, but I've been very bummed out. And then on top of it, we got bad reviews from two people. <laughs> really fine. mean fine, reviews, kind of. And they bummed me out even more. But, My you com- know, like, because the computer, I mean, it just got ruined, and we were so bummed out about that already. You know what and I'm then saying? I and, look, then- and then I finally go on my phone and look up. My review, the I was just gonna check to see reviews, and there at the top, two in a row. Yep, because we would have definitely had an episode out by y'all. But well, we were trying to post it. And whoever JKL is, you know (laughs) who you are. iTunes. We said we pronounced many six letter and above words this time. Thank you very much. And just for a fact, and you know, many people accidentally. Say r- words wrong. I mean, yes. it happens. It's life. And I can assure you, I read over all of my stories before I do them, and it just so happens some words don't come out right. I mean, that's how it is. That's life. Hell, some words don't come out right if I'm not reading exactly. or anything. That's life, folks. That's life yeah. for you. Anyway, so bum and then bummer. And then dumber and, and dumber. <laughs> present <laughs> anyway so that's what we have that's for you this time you. please somebody out there cover uh, go ahead of those two bad reviews and give us some good reviews yes. if you don't mind or just email us or give us the good reviews yeah that'd be good <laughs> well anyways that's all we got for you I'll see you next time as always I've been Stan. And I'm always Drew. I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And And we're we're the the hosts of Nature vs. Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Sacramento, California. Canton, Michigan. Green River, Honolulu, Hawaii. Omaha, Nebraska. Niagara, North Dakota. Gloucester, United Kingdom. Dakota County, Wyoming. Epizoyacan, Hidalgo, Mexico. Flint, Michigan. Boston, Massachusetts. Phoenix, Arizona. Woodruff, South Carolina. Edmonton, New York. Hudson Valley, New York. In season two, we will examine notorious killers in cities across the globe from A to Z. We'll delve into their criminal history as well as their upbringing to try to determine why these killers commit these violent acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was was it plain plain old old narcissism? narcissism? Find us on your favorite podcast streaming service or visit murder.ly.